I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. I'm sorry, I'm just, I put, I've got my microphone on a book tonight just so it's more at mouth level. So I just, I feel like some kind of accident's going to happen at some point. Or the 100th episode, you're still fumbling with the microphone. I know. I've been, <laughs> I feel like in the course of 100 episodes, um, we've learned nothing about the technical side of the podcast. Well. well I think you've learned nothing because I mean, I, 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 I set it up each week and I know I know the bare essentials of GarageBand, but I think you've learned nothing. I've learned almost nothing. I've learned so much about yeah. us and about, about life. Well, that, that's that's what the journey's been all that's about. That's what right? it's all about. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's all about. It's Technical bit, knowledge be damned. It is a bit surreal to think we've been doing it for 100 episodes. It is. It is. All the things we've been through. I know. This is a pandemic creation. I know. And now we're in a post-pandemic world. Yeah, or a, or a peri-pandemic world. Oh, interesting. If you heard that, that phrase. An epidemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's funny. The, the scars still run deep, though. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Like, it, it that whole pandemic period, like... In some ways, like 2018 feels closer than mm. 2019, mm. 2020. Like the whole mm. period when we started the podcast actually feels strangely out of time. Yes. So yes. And speak, speaking of uh, things that are strangely out of time, oh. should we get to our first uh, I was just going to... Seriously, you're going to riff? You're done. You've had enough. Okay, truncated that pristine moment. I just thought in the century episode, I was going to be a bit of recollection. We haven't done it for a while, but you're, you're ready to start. I was going to give the audience what they want. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> the reviews. Without any, without any further ado, sorry. Oh, oh the microphone almost fell over. Um, okay. I'll... I'll take it down in a sec. I'm just going to try and make do for the moment. Um, without any further ado, um, our first show this week, it's it's a doozy. A big hundred. It's big a big hundred, hundred yeah. Um, I know, the first show is a doozy, like not the episode, the first oh. show. Tr- you know, oh. I'm actually going to take this off the, <laughs> off the book that it's on. Wait a sec. We're going to keep recording. We'll keep recording. Well, we're not stopping. I told, I told you this would be a thing. Yep, I know. Okay, yep. So that's... <laughs> there we go. So... So the first show this week is True Detective Season 4. And now I want to put a, the microphone back on the book. <laughs> I'm going to put it back on the book. Wait a sec. Wait a sec. Champagne podcasting. I'm just being careful not to unplug it because I don't know actually how to continue the podcast if I unplug it. I don't know, we've never had that before. Um, okay. I'm committing to the, it's one the microphone take. on the book. Yep. The Clint Eastwood of podcasters. It's authentic. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> one like, take, one take only. Like if, Next. If Russian Ark... With a podcast, <laughs> this would be it. I feel like Russian Ark was like a, took it. Let's make it a little bit more highbrow than the Clint. <laughs> That's fine. You stick with Clint Eastwood. Um, yeah. So True Detective season four. So as with anthology series, we always treat a new a new season as a new show because it's self contained. Mm. But and this one is rather reminiscent of Alexander Sokorov's tourist work. No. Well, <laughs> it's set in the far north. It's icy. It's icy. It's all icy wastes. Is Russian arc icy? Yeah. Like, I feel like it's all it's set. the contrast in the coziness. I feel like it's all set of, inside. Of the hermitage. Isn't the, the whole thing the set thing. in the hermitage? No, no. The ending. I think. Oh, the yeah. Ending, but, a, but, but apart. The ending. <laughs> <laughs> I may have fallen asleep when I saw that at the Valhalla. Um, but yeah, so True Detective season four. So, you know, it's, it's a new story, but it's also, in a way, a reboot of the series, right? So the first three seasons of True Detective were all helmed by Nick Pizzolatto. Yes. They were kind of his project. That It was self-consciously kind of auteurist television. Yeah. And, and swaggering, swaggering yeah. uh, patriarchal kind of kind of show yeah full of, full of masculine speechifying absolutely and also marked it's funny like that whole era in the early to mid 2000s um, early to mid 2010s there were all these different um kind of i guess it's a time when quality television or that third wave of quality television was kind of reaching its absolute apex yeah and they're so all the, the overwrought the overall phase and there were all kinds of experiments, I think, in where it might go next. And I felt like True Detective was an experiment in, like, the writerly television movement. So yes. it's like it's almost like television that's designed to be watched with the screenplay, you know, screenplay hand in hand. Like, it was so writerly. And yeah. you said speechifying. It did interesting things with, with genre as well. It, it stretched did. All it that stretched stuff. This kind of this kind of investigative film noirish kind of yep. genre as far as it would go yep. within towards the realm of the avant-garde. Absolutely. Um and yeah, and it just had a kind of yeah, and yeah. Like I said also like that very writerly style. So this is, in some ways, it's, it is similar to the first three seasons, and it's kind of a continuation of the aesthetic. And it's actually some some kind of connections narratively as well to the first three seasons. But it's kind of very much its own thing, and it, it definitely it feels in particular like a kind of pulling back or a pulling away from that baroque speechifying. And mm. there's actually a new. Um, showrunner Issa Lopez and you can kind of tell that like I mean as you said there is there is 
much more of a focus on the first time like the kind of investigators are both women but also the dialogue is more clipped yes. and it's, it's less ponderous and less bloated and less pontificating in some ways but what's continuous between the seasons is there's a real focus on like deep textures like american regionalism deep mm. textures there's a real like really strong kind of cloistered atmosphere and sense of a kind of sequestered world and there's also kind of hints of the occult the arcane and the supernatural yeah, although a that's a folkloric element folkloric element exactly calls to mind that 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 kind of swipe lynchian surrealism yeah exactly and you know it's kind of funny like i know that this has been well not divisive online but there's a lot of fans of the original who've you know, like had had issues with it. it. To me, this feels very close to what the series was always meant to be, or what I always wanted it to be, at least. But before we get into all that, just to give a kind of quick overview, um, basically the fourth season revolves around um, a crime that takes place in the fictional Alaskan town of Ennis, mm. and it, it, the crime takes place um, a night or two. It's discovered a night or two after the polar night begins, or almost actually it coincides with the polar night. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a team of eight eight scientists who've been working in a kind of Arctic research facility, and the team um, suddenly vanish, and they're discovered by like a delivery driver, and then the kind of the investigation, the procedure that follows, um, involves what's happened to them. So. That's the kind of backdrop, and within that, it's, there's, there's kind of two, two, two cops. Um, Jodie Foster, who plays Chief Liz Danvers, who, you know, is not a, a local to Ennis. She's moved there from, seems like, from Minnesota or from from the lower forty-eight mm. somewhere. It's not exactly clear how long she's been there, and she's working in tandem with Trooper Evangeline Navarro, played by Kelly Rice, who is from the area. Yeah, and there's tension between them and. The narrative from the outset... Or is she? Is she from the area? Is she from the area? No, no. It emerges that perhaps she's not. Okay, I've seen, yeah. all, I've seen all the three episodes. So when does that... Oh. What, what, yeah, all her origins are, are, oh, okay. are, are not I didn't not pick up on there. that. Okay. But again, these characters' backstories are, are part of this mystery. Yeah, yeah. This enveloping mystery. Um, so we do, you know, as the mystery unfolds, we do learn more about these characters, their backstory, but also their relationship, what mm. caused the big, the big falling out mm. and... The, the exiling of uh, Navarro to mm. the, the the traffic cops mm. in effect. So there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of backstory that goes unexplained here mm. um, and hinted at. I think through this kind of inference, which is I think really strong. I mm. think it's one of the strongest things about this show that the the mysteries lie at this interpersonal level within the, the detectives as much as it does with the you know the big overarching mystery. I remember that was such a strong feature of the original to the point where you wondered whether one of the two detectives was actually the perpetrator of the crime and mm. it, it turned out that they weren't. But yeah, and and I think that's that's very much the case here like this. So it's almost kind of overdetermined like each character's backstory is is kind of complex but also elliptical so you mm. kind of catch snatches of it in a way that just kind of adds to the mystery of the whole thing um and yeah the crime that um that kind of drove Jodie Foster and Callie Reese apart involved the murder of a First Nations woman um who was protesting the kind of activities of the mine that sustain in us so yeah and there's all kinds of other details so Jodie Foster has got a stepdaughter from a relationship that seems to have begun in Ennis, but we don't know what happened to the yep. guy. Um, John Hawkes is a side character playing a cop whose son is also a cop. And there's just hints that John Hawkes' character has a kind of uneasy relationship with the department. There's a point where Jodie Foster, instead of asking him to kind of bring some files on a case to work, gets his son to steal them. Um, from his house there's all kinds of I thought they were husband and wife at first they seemed like they were husband and wife but then that was not the case in that first scene yeah they've got a kind of kind of they feel a little bit like spouses don't they so the mystery plays out and gradually expands to encompass a lot of people in the town I I really I mean you've been watching it week by week yeah I mean I, I love this like I feel like I felt I felt really ambivalent. Ambivalent is too strong a word. There were things I loved about the first season of True Detective. Like, I loved the atmosphere. I loved that sense of dread. And I loved the kind of, almost the kind of aesthetic of emergence. Like, it felt Mm. like this kind of, this kind of occult network was gradually manifesting itself in a whole lot of distribute like you know yeah. places like distributed across space and time it was, was a real who was the, the subject of those all those internet conspiracies was that the king the, the horn the king white or white king or something, <laughs> or something like that but yeah something like, exactly like that so it was like 
there was a sense and you know great scenes where as you said there were these kind of internet conspiracies about it but also great scenes where characters would visit you know abandoned or run down or out of the way places and realize that they were actually central to yeah. the kind of conspiracy it's, it's, it's like and it was like a kind of arcane networked aesthetic. Yeah. And I think obviously the distinguishing feature of this is the, the sweep of it. Mm. The fact that this is, you know, a, a crime that, that has ramifications across generations. Mm. And one of the, the strange and uncanny things about the original was the that, that weird sort of blurred sense of temporality mm. and the famous quote, time is a flat circle. Mm. Um, you know, epitomised that. And, you know, combined with the you know, Detective Rustin Cole's, mm. um, you know, hallucinations... Mm. We were always out of joint with time. Hmm. Um, I mean, I think my issue with the first one, though, is I just I really feel like it didn't land the ending. Like no, that's some, true. And you know, it was didn't, one it was it one of those things where it's like stick you know, the landing. No, and it did feel at the end like well, it's great to have all the baroque verbiage, but you know, there seemed to be said for just competent storytelling as well, or yeah. at least leaving stuff open. So this this feels more promising in that respect, just because it is already so, like I said, overdetermined that it feels like there's a lot of stuff that can't be resolved. Um, but it does have that great sense, like one of my favourite moments so far. I feel like in a way we're talking about the first three episodes because we've watched all three, but there's a, there's a symbol in the first series that recurs here and it's a bit where a character speculates that the symbol is old, older than the ice. Yes. So like that, that sense of kind of ancient time of something even more ancient than the ice is a really big part of it and a really incredible part of it. But obviously like something that makes this series absolutely distinct is the fact that it is set during the polar night. Mm. So watching it is quite a remarkable experience. I mean, my, because like, just to kind of give a sense of how the first episode played out for me, like I've, I felt really unsettled watching it and really disoriented. And I suddenly realised it was because I had no idea what time of day it was. Mm. You know, at, at first, instinctively, your brain assumes it's late at night. But of course, you know, many of the scenes you're watching are playing out at 10am or 12pm or 2pm. And it's actually, it makes every character... Like, it imbues every character with a kind of quantum of ambiguity because, mm. you know, there are things that are very normal at 9pm that are not at all normal at 10am. Yeah. And, behave like, behaviours are so dependent on what time of day they're taking place. And, yes. you know, although every now and then there are strategically placed clocks to tell you what time it is, they're not frequent enough to take away that sense of uncanniness. So no. there's... Everyone's behaviour feels, again, somewhat emergent and somewhat open-ended just because it's not tied into that diurnal rhythm. And it's, yeah. that in itself makes for a remarkable viewing experience. Yeah, well, the uncanniness of time in the first one mm. has sort of been substituted for an uncanniness of place here, yeah. which is married with that uncanniness of time. Well, exactly, said, like... Yeah, that, that blurred well, just because sense of temporality. Time has... And all yeah. that... And it plays, in, you know... It plays out in really interesting ways. So the series has flashbacks to this original crime, the murder of the First Nations woman, but that crime took place during daylight hours. Mm. So all the flashbacks that take place are to, I guess, what is the kind of um, the midnight sun. Mm. So the flashbacks seem to take place in this com in this deep time and this completely different kind of paradigm of time because they occurred. Do you know what I mean? Like it's mm. like it, it gives you a sense of what it must be like to remember the midnight sun during the polar night and, mm. vi and, and, and vice versa. Like, mm. So it really kind of... Ca and of course, because it takes place just after the polar night has begun, everyone is still unacclimatised to it. It's funny, I think I, I showed you, I saw on Facebook that the sun just rose over Barrow, Alaska yes. for the first time a couple of days ago. And it because the polar night has just set, certainly in the first episode especially... Like, it feels like everybody's experiencing their own particular version of, like, night craziness. Yeah. And almost like that's Jodie Foster's main job, for the most part, to deal with the night craziness, yes. to deal with what the endless night does to people. Like, there's a couple of... Like, there's a woman, a drunk driver, who she apprehends in the first episode, who always drives around drunk, who's always, you know, hysterical. And it feels like, although there's some biographical reasons, it's fundamentally a response to the darkness yes so it feels like everyone's yes there's a disorienting bleary-eyed quality to this it's show it's like a term it's like it's whatever the equivalent of you know, like a jet lag or seasonal affective disorder it's something it's like, it's like dark crazy yeah like everyone's yeah. gone dark crazy so that it's an incredible premise and that that works i think like brilliantly yeah yeah and i, I think you know even if the they don't stick this landing the, the journey is oh. is is interesting because of the the delineation of the the spaces the unique mm. spaces and the the characters who inhabit them so it's something, it's something i really appreciate like i love however the first three episodes like it does very lovingly etch out more and more of venice so mm. we see 
the factory where you know the mine that drives the mine um, the mine that drives it and the fishing industry that drives the town we see the workers quarters we see a hotel um, it's a very significant sequence that takes place around the local ice like ice rink there we see the school like it really satisfies your curiosity to see what everyday life looks like under these yes, circumstances yes. and ultimately with these sort of big sweeping um, crime dramas mm. you need to go to the peripheries to understand mm. the locus of power yeah yeah that's um, it's a network aesthetic it, that's right yeah. that's right so as they increasingly you know penetrate into the hinterland mm. and see the mine and the the, the um, nomad camp mm. uh, you the, get a sense of that these, is a great space these, these relations of power uh, these liminal spaces on the on the outskirts of the town that help help you understand the the networks of power that played themselves out more opaquely mm. in the center of Venice. Mm. Um, and they're, they're eerie those spaces aren't they like we haven't mentioned as a character Fiona played by Fiona Shaw mm. who lives on the outskirts of town and who who hallucinates and just you know characters like that who live out in the middle of nowhere like I found mm. myself wondering watching it like because I, I got really interested in these far northern settlements. Yeah. So, like, you know, I've been reading into the northernmost towns in the world and I think I sent you a description. Like, some someone who'd spent time there said, like, it's not like darkness in the city. Like, because you are so far north, and especially in places like Barrow, which are really cloudy, like, beyond the town, it is it is sheer black. Pit, yeah, it's pitch black. Yeah, like, yeah. so it's almost like sensory deprivation. Mm. So I kind of wonder if there is a sense in which, you know, I, I wonder if hallucinations happen. Mm. Like, And also, like, characters talk about wanting just to walk out in the snow and stop and obviously that can be attributed to suicidal ideation but i wonder if there's also a kind of darkness hypnosis like highway hypnosis like it must it must have a hypnotic hallucinatory effect like could you do it i I don't think i could do it i would love to try yeah i I don't think i don't think i could i would love to to book a ticket to barrow and experience the polar night i found myself actually (laughs) researching travel goals (laughs) because barrow is amazing like barrow like Barrow is so far north. Like, it is on the northernmost tip. Like, apart from a little peninsula, Barrow is as north as the North, as the north America gets. Yeah. Is. I just, I feel like for, a, for like, a couple of nights, it'd be a novelty. And then I would realise in, in the most traumatic way <laughs> how dependent my body is on diurnal rhythms of light, light and dark. Like, I just feel like it would just be so, so crazy after a while. Yeah. Um, something I was wondering, I'm just looking kind of what I like. Is there a difference, do you reckon, between Arctic and Antarctic horror? The thing about this watching it, is, is, <laughs> is Arctic horror more climate change-centric? Like, is how is this aesthetic different to... Because I feel like... I'm wondering partly because this... Remember there was that period around 2013, 2014, when, you know, the DVD era was ending, but the streaming era hadn't begun. And there were just series that kind of came out that just didn't have the kind of they just didn't kind of get to australia in the same way i remember we watched a show called fortitude which came out then which was it had christopher eccleston in it okay so i think that it's either throwback to that had stanley tucci like it was a top cast and it was arctic horror it was set in russia so okay. this is like that so i'm just kind of wondering like this, this, is was, arctic that show, was that show the terror i think the, the terror the about the ship yeah icebound uh, yes which, that's part of it which is i think this is a lot better than that i never saw that um, actually that that the idea was was amazing, yeah, yeah. but it looked didn't like quite it could be glacially paced. Yes, was yep. didn't quite stick the landing. I mean, also the North Water, which yeah, the North Water, right. which I thought was more effective. Yeah, right. Uh, great, great Colin Farrell performance. Yeah, um, that goes real deep, <laughs> deep yeah, Arctic. Yeah. So what's what is it like? How, how is Arctic horror? Do you think different from it? I just I don't have any answers. I was just kind of curious. I yeah, think. it's a very interesting question. I more proximate to human settlement, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't know. Or I don't know. It, Climate change. And yeah. wasn't a voyage, a murder at the end of the world, was that Greenland? Uh, Iceland. Iceland. Iceland, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think there's been much Antarctic mm. horror apart like from the, the thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah, so... I, like Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah, hard to speculate. But it feels like it's a thing. Like, it feels like even like... We're, obviously, next week we'll do Masters of the Air. Um, but, like, even that has scenes in Greenland. Yeah. And also the film... Greenland, starring <laughs> Jared Butler. Like, True. you just feel like every there's this, there's this sense of the Arctic as like an impending yeah. kind of crisis. Yeah, what's well, yeah. the canary in the coal mine? It is. That's it. Um, that's that's what it but is. It, yeah. but it's also you know a landscape that that does change seasonally, like yep. in an uncanny way, mm. um, and will change even more. Yeah. So it's, it's where partly, climate change is yeah, visible. Exactly. Radically but it's visible. It's also partly a space of refuge. Yep. From it yep. as well as it was in that that movie Greenland. Uh. Um, so that that paradox, where it's you know it's it's a terrifying space uh, that makes us con- confront with the sort of sublime 
uh, real, but it's also a space of retreat and. Because this has um, this has some elements that doesn't it? Like there's environmental concerns about the mine. Mm. There is. It's a mine, yeah. There's a mine. Yeah, the mine there's also yeah. the fishing industry depleting yeah. local waters. The one of the big narrative questions is what exactly the scientists are researching. It seems like they're digging into, they're doing ice cores. Yes, I love the ice cores. <laughs> they're so creepy. Yes. they're doing ice cores to find some pathogen. Is it, was it like that? That that kind of some super pathogen or something yeah. like that. But yeah. there's also a climate element, maybe. Yes, in that sense, that there's that sort of. You know, striations of, yep. of history. And, yeah, I want to see more yeah. of the ice cores. The ice cores <laughs> yeah. are cool. Yeah, the sort of deep, deep history of the world. Yep. Embedded yeah. in those, embedded in those ice caps. Geological that, that, time that could kind of emerge in a kind of return of the repressed yep. with climate change. That's so, that, that's exact. That's exactly it. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's that sense that yeah. something is beneath the ice, so older than the ice. So it will come back. Maybe an inherently gothic space. That's it. And one associated with supernatural. Yep. And also, um, well. You know, extraterrestrial. Yeah. There's even that that angle there. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, Dave. Okay, Dave. <laughs> uh, but but certainly certainly um, look, it does wear its David Lynch influences on its sleeve. So it would be very interesting to talk mm. about um, our archive corner. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Choice. But to, to say, like you know, like I just it is great to see Jodie Foster in a in a really great role oh, too. Yeah. Like it's it is just it is it's perfect. Like it's made for her. Like and she is she is very comforting. Yeah. In this space. Yeah. The it's, cast is great. John Hawkes is yep, great. Yep. He's fantastic. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I think it's yeah. All the characters. Kelly Reese yep. is, is really good. Fiona too. Shaw. Yeah. Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. Yep. It's, yeah. Great. It's perfect. Great cast. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, it's 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 intriguing. It's mm. really what you want for a hook. Did you watch all of season two and season three? I I've only seen some of season three. Okay. Uh, well, you know how I feel about season two. I like season two. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll talk about it another time. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. part of the rehabilitation. Group um, well, for, uh, I don't think it need to be re- <laughs> re- I, didn't, I didn't, don't think it need to be rehabilitated. Well, I thought season two was great. Copped, probably. Oh, they were just wrong. <laughs> um, but I think what you said just which is really true. Like it is great when you see a show where you're like, no matter how it ends. Each of the three episodes so far are great on their own terms. Yeah. Like, and they, it may continue to be great, but that's a great sign, I think, when each episode is almost like its own self-contained work. Yeah. I feel like that's very much a case here. I mean, like, again, I kind of feel like the original has so much kind of going for it the first season, and I, I kind of want to go back and rewatch all of them actually. But um, I do feel like, in a way, this is what it was meant to be for me. Like, this kind of makes sense. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I love it. I'm a hard in. I think it's really eventful. I absolutely love season one. Mm. And I don't think this measures up season one, but that's only because season one, I think, was a real masterpiece. And I think yeah. this is this is very good. I think this is the strongest season yeah. since season one. I'm going to go with that. I think it's better than season one. <laughs> I feel like season one absolutely stuffed the landing. And I thought season one was just a to me, there was just, it was very it was, it was too talky for me. I like I like <laughs> the dialogue here a lot more. Like I'm not that into that kind of writerly style that much. So yeah, I think it's fantastic. Like I'm a hard into. Yeah, I'm definitely. In. It's terrific. All right, on to our next show, and continuing the the crime crime fiction sort of bent. Of we're, this, all, we're all crime this week, the, yeah. Of this one uh, hundredth episode, one of our favourite genres. Yep. Um, mm. Is it our favourite genre? Horror. Yeah, horror. Horror. I think horror <laughs> then crime. Horror then crime. Horror then crime. Horror then crime. And then daylight. Then daylight. Daylight. <laughs> They're the most spatial genres. Yeah. Any genre that's spatial. Yeah, what, what's, true. What, what's your What's your like? Not that we hate any genres, but what's your bottom genre? Do you think? Reality. Oh, reality television? Yeah. Well, yeah, so so film genre, let's say, because there's not much reality film. Musical. That, and animation. That, yeah, I think animation's a different... <laughs> that blows my mind that musical's your least favourite. Musicals are amazing. Yeah. Just... I wonder what my bottom yeah, is. Just not particularly my jam. I appreciate the good ones. I think my bottom is probably war. Oh, no. War, good. War, war can be good. I just find... I mean, maybe, maybe this is a pretty basic thing to say, but... I find war films are a bit of a bummer. <laughs> I know that's the case, but just like it's like, so you'd you rather see watch those, those positive, uplifting war films. Huh? So, so you'd rather watch like say, so you like watching a film like Fury. You'd rather watch that than say Sound of Music. Yeah, Fury. I love Fury. That's crazy. To me. That's crazy. <laughs> David Ayer. Great. Great. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, love war. Yep. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so we're into crime here. Okay. And our, our next series, Criminal Record. Now this is an Apple TV drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that has, it feels like it has all the hallmarks of a kind of BBC drama as well, which has kind of been rebadged, repackaged yeah. uh, in the Apple TV Plus sheen. I wonder if <laughs> BBC could be a little generous. <laughs> True. It's weird because the BBC Apple TV sheen, but the content feels like EastEnders. Anyway, keep going. Okay, sure, sure, sure. So this one stars Peter Capaldi, famous from Doctor Who, who stars as DCI Daniel Hegarty. He's an old school... Uh, detective, hmm. and uh, we we first meet him 
uh, moonlighting as a cab driver yep. and giving giving a ride to some some you know slightly intoxicated Londoners, and they eventually discover he's a detective and they ask you know what are all can you give us all the you know the insider information about crimes that have occurred. It's funny when I was watching this, I wrote down like on my phone my notes like a British taxi driver and then realised that was just the most basic take ever. <laughs> he's a British guy in a taxi. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has a good he has a good sense of you know the the alternative the yeah. alternative. One day uh, a real rain will come. <laughs> alternative map of of London yeah. marked by all the heinous the knowledge crimes. Yes, the, yes, the the detective knowledge, the, knowledge. the crime knowledge. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he's a very jaded, world weary man mm. uh, who's obviously done things, yep. seen things yep. uh, that he wants to disavow. Now. His face, he's got that craggy face. He does have that craggy yeah, yeah. face. His face is a narrative. <laughs> His face is a narrative. Um, so uh, all of a sudden, we're introduced um, to a, a woman who calls up and makes a disclosure to a an emergency line operator mm. that. Uh, you know, she knows someone who's committed a murder and the wrong man has been imprisoned as a result of that. So the, the, the call operator eventually, uh, the word eventually gets to a, a young detective on the, the up and come, uh, Kush Jumbo, who's uh, DS June Lenka. Uh, so as a result of this, she decides to, to follow this up mm-hmm. and takes this, this call with, with deadly seriousness. And it turns out that this is actually uh, Daniel Hegarty's case. Mm. And she starts to dig as to whether and how perhaps the wrong man was convicted yep. of this crime. Which seems to me, like just watching, re-watching The Wire at the moment, that's one of the absolute no's of police etiquette, like reopening someone else's case. Yes, it just, yes. It's such a, you, you don't do it unless you're absolutely sure. Yes, and she makes obviously the big faux pas of going to him mm. and seeking to, to elicit further information to try to sort of cast doubt mm. on that initial uh, conviction. Mm. So it turns out that uh, yeah, Hegarty was the investigating officer. The case was the Burroughs case. And uh, the victim's boyfriend, Errol Mathis, was was ultimately charged with the murder. He's serving a 24-year uh, prison sentence. And there's an interesting intersection here of race and class as well. Mm. So uh, Hegarty, obviously, uh, you know, classic Anglo-Saxon. Uh, the, uh, Lenka is a female and uh, of colour. And it, Errol Mathis is also a man of colour here. So there might be a suggestion that this, this is a frame-up. Mm. And, you know, these, uh, especially the old school, uh, you know, hierarchies of race and class played a Mm. significant role in this conviction. So this sort of bifurcated narrative follows both Lenka trying to sort of break this case, Mm. make it, you know, engineer reopening of it. With the class stuff too, a lot of it revolves around... housing estate tower that's like got a really big presence in the narrative too doesn't like i think it's actually visible from um peter capaldi's office window and it's just it's a real kind of object that looks back in the narrative like there's lots of shots of this looming tower yeah there's shots from the tower yes they're going for a bit of a cabrini green vibe yes yes like that that's that's the vibe they're going for definitely definitely and the other the other strand of the narrative is is hegarty going to all his former colleagues and Mm. and seeking to to continue the hush up yep um so, what did you think? This was one of those shows <laughs> that I kept on trying to convince myself I really liked. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, on paper, the premise is great, right? Yeah, like, you've got, good. like, the premise is good. So, you got, yeah, as you said, you've got this younger, kind of, you know, more relatable kind of detective who opens a case. She comes up against this old guy, you know, who's kind of, you know, embedded in the system. And, you know, I thought the stuff about their professional relationship was really interesting. So, it's kind of, she obviously has a hunch on the case. He wants it closed. And it's interesting the way, for example, she uses risk management and kind of future proofing to kind of open it. She's like, we best better, you know, cross all up, you know, doddle, you know, cross it, you know, doddle eyes, doddle eyes, tickle our boxes. So she kind of, it's interesting that internal departmental stuff. And interesting too, because both the characters, I think, are kind of, they're both a little bit ambiguous and sympathetic in their own way. Like she obviously has a hunch. But also, she's a little bit nosy in yeah. the case. Well, she's a careerist. Yeah, she, yeah. Wants a, she wants to make a. She wants to make a name. She, exactly, and she, you know, does go above and beyond protocol. Like well, something her supervisor says to her is, you know, why don't you email this guy and tell him? Like, it, you know, no one tells her not to investigate it, but but she wants yeah, exactly. So she's a career. She's quite credulous as well. Yeah, and, exactly. And really, quite preemptorily suspects the worst. Yep, yeah, exactly. Whereas he, obviously, on the one hand, is presented as a kind of older conservative, but. 
you know, you also don't know his full story. And no. he, has a, he has a kind of discretion and even a tact about the case at times that can be quite compelling compared to her gung-ho approach. So both of them are kind of interesting characters. Mm. Which led me to suspect, is at some point they're going to team up? Yeah, I mean, they, they've <laughs> got to team up, right? That, that, that's got to be the kind of... That's like the emotional denouement. I wonder if they'll team up against the system together in some way. Okay. I just... Because he's, he's depicted quite sympathetically. Yep. So I was wondering, is this going to be a kind of, you know, yep. uh, Holmes, you know, Moriarty kind yeah, of antagonism? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, but Peter Capaldi's a little bit too sympathetic for that. I agree. I don't know. Well, it's just res- maybe it's just residual sympathy from his other roles. Yeah, that could be it. I mean, he definitely, from the beginning, he seemed positioned to be you know, craggy but sympathetic. Yeah. I just like, I just don't know about if, if I'm massively into British procedurals. Like, I just feel like... There's just, there's an, and maybe like, you know, like in certain types, I feel like I'm talking, I'm going to alienate any potential British listeners here, but you know, know, like certain types of British television, I think it's like such, it comes from having such a big tabloid culture. There's just a slightly pulpy, absurd, melodramatic quality to it. And I feel this show to me kind of had that, like there was just bits that I just did not find plausible. So the central, like the opening premise, like as you said, there's a woman on the payphone, she's in fear for her life. There's no one else around. Like, it's not like there's someone there with her. We see the shot of her on the payphone and she won't say what her, what her name is or kind of give, you know, enough detail about what's happening. Now, that could be explained in some really ingenious way and up to a point it's intriguing. But part of me just found it, like, just a bit implausible. Why just, she would say this murder thing but then not say her not name. Not give any more... It felt to context, me like a plot yeah. point. And I, yeah. I mean, this is... And I know that... I'm not the main school of thought here. I guess how I feel like about a sh- like some shows like Line of Duty and stuff. Like they're just certain British procedurals that, for whatever reason, for me, just have this this slightly absurd, melodramatic, pulpy quality that just takes me out of it. And I kind of feel like makes the social commentary like a bit soggy. Yeah. Like I just feel like the whole social commentary of it was just a bit, oh, yeah, like a bit soggy, like a bit limp, and just a bit. I just find you know, and again, you know, I'm watching. I feel like I'm becoming that guy who's telling everyone I'm rewatching The Wire, and I know I know this can't be The Wire. But just watching a show that's really tight procedurally and just builds a commentary into it, this just kind of feels like a bit of an implausible procedural. It's a with, little bit too much telling. Yeah, with not a, with a side serving of heated up commentary. Yeah, like it's like, yeah. and it's a pity because like the two leads are. They're great actors, both of yeah. them. They've got real presence. They've both got great television presence. They do. Like, they really work in this kind of procedural. They do. I, they, I, like you said, I really wanted to enjoy this. I really... I, I like the style, and I thought the, the, the setup was interesting. And I did not enjoy it. Yeah. But I just was like, meh. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Meh. And I think increasingly as the, the episode progressed, I was like that. Yeah, and it's like... With that sogginess, it's like a slightly maudlin edge to it too. Like yeah. it's just like soggy maudlin. I just, yeah, I just like just. It was quite melodramatic. The the denouement of this, yeah, of this or the or the hanging, yeah, you know, climax. You know, so yeah, yeah. And I just, as you said, like the premise is, it's like, and again, it may become like a kind of like a Chekhov's gun thing. And you know why that why that phone call happens it does it just kind of took me out of it and i just really wanted to see i kind of just wanted to see these two characters battling it out over jurisdictional issues and discovering small things about the case as they went on like that really kind of intense procedural focus but it's like got this slightly just yeah and it just seems to be a thing with a certain kind of british procedural yeah i'm just not that into it it's a little bit underwritten Yes, it's, that's, it's that's both, a good way to put it. Overridden and underwritten. Yep, that's a good uh, way to put it. And you can you see then some of the supporting characters. Mm. So, for example, Lenka's partner, who's the psychologist, mm. and just has a quite a obvious sort of debrief with her. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. It, it was just a bit conventional that at that point. So yeah, there's a scene about how a guy like in it is an incompetent. She someone refers to someone as an incompetent OJ. And this long, like, 10-minute discussion about whether that's racially loaded. And it's like, well, it just seems like he said it because it's just somebody well-known who tried to kill his wife. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's an obvious... Like, I'm not saying that the other stuff isn't there, but there's just these long disquisitions on things that are just not that dramatic. No. They're a bit dramatically inert. It's the sort of thing that would be brushed aside quite quickly in The Wire, yep. commented on, yep. but but brushed yep. aside as a, as, a, as a minor plot point. Yep. Whereas this is really expanded yeah. for 10 minutes. Just I would just say like soggy. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like just kind of a bit soggy and reheated, yeah. like, which is weird because there's two really good actors in it yeah. and the premise is great, yeah. but it's yeah. just like... Yeah, I think I think fans of British procedurals will enjoy this yeah, and will have a really good time. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely I fine. I agree. But with the glut of TV, yep, 
We need more than fine, don't we? We do. And it's 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 a bit of a downer to see something that's fine with all that Apple TV Plus sheen. Yes. Like, save for something good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. It's I so exquisitely curated, yeah. the Apple TV brand, yeah. that something like this is a, is a little... Netflixy for it, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, I don't need to see this in ultra ultra HD. I'm good. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like True. it's it's yeah, it just True. it makes you realize. I mean, it just it, yeah, it, it it makes you realize how how great it is when you get a really really strong British procedural. So mm. I'm not saying they don't exist, but there's mm. just a certain. I thought the gold was the gold. Was, the gold was, was terrific. That, I thought that was the best British procedural. It was really unsentimental. Yep. Really, terrific. really unsparing in its in its terrific depiction. Its lens was really was really focused. And you know for. F- Films that are about the kind of class, the series that kind of like that. Was it Rain Dogs, that show that we yeah. did last year? That was, that was incredible. Yeah. So, like, it's just this... I mean, it just feels a bit like The Bill. Yeah. <laughs> it feels a bit like The Bill, which is fine, but just yeah. be The Bill. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. um... Look, you know, if you have a predilection for this this type of TV, and it's, it's your thing, it's your thing, do your thing. Yep. Um, but it's not my thing. No. It's, it's <laughs> eminently fine. <laughs> okay. On to our next series. And guess what the genre is? Crime. It's crime. crime. It's crime, baby. This one is Death and Other Details, currently streaming on Disney+. Plus. So this series is about uh, Rufus Coatsworth, who is played by Mandy Patinkin. Always good for shtick. That's right. Who was once the greatest detective in the world, or at least in his own estimation. Uh, so... We meet a, a young girl, uh, Imogen Scott, who is the victim of, well, her mother is, is murdered in a car bomb. That's in a flashback and we flash forward to the future and we learn that Rufus Coatsworth is now sharing a cruise with Imogen Scott. Ultimately, Coatsworth never cracked the case of what happened to Imogen's mother and she, she bears a, a lasting bitterness towards him. So she's now uh, a, young, a young woman and she's been invited on a cruise courtesy of her friendship with an heiress. So this, this, uh, this show, true to the, sort of the Agatha Christie uh, country house murder mystery formula, takes place entirely on a luxury ocean liner. So we learn that Imogen was basically raised by this wealthy family and the, the, the wealthy family consists of power broker Lawrence Collier and his wife and Imogen is friends with, with the, the heir, the successor, Anna, who believes she's taking over the family fortune in a kind of sort of succession type mm. uh, narrative strand. Uh, one of the, the guests turns up murdered on the first night of the cruise. Mm-hmm. And everyone, according to Rufus Coatsworth, is a suspect. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a setup that's, you know, really calls to mind uh, Knives Out yep. and Glass Onion. Yep. And really is part of this this wave of reviving the kind of classic who done it murder mystery well, it feels um, like that Ryan Johnson, Ryan really, Johnson really gave a lot of well, feel, fuel to. And I feel like it's like there's like two trends coming together here, right? The Who Done It and the kind of, you know, rich people on holiday. So yeah. it feels like it's like it's like knives well, out true. plus white lotus <laughs> plus triangle of sadness plus succession. It's just like they I wonder is this a moment AI. We, AI, yeah. Like is this a moment at which like the high concept who done it and the high concept like rich people on holiday just becomes a streaming staple? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's completely unoriginal. It could be. It but could it's be. it's kind of enjoyable. Like it just it just it just it's like a it's like a lightly digest like a digestible version of all those shows. Yes, true, true, true. Um, so it's it certainly has like a kind of candy coloured aesthetic. Yep. A kind of millennial pink aesthetic. Yep. Um, the ship looks like like it feels a bit like inflicted through Barbie too. The ship looks like yeah. a toy. Yes, yes. Yeah. And all the characters look like mannequins. Yep. Part of me was wondering, well, what, what era is this set in? Mm. Um, and it's set in the present day, mm-hmm. but we learned that the ship's owner and designer uh, modelled everything after decor yep. and uh, design architecture from the, from the I think, 50s or 60s. They explain that pretty explicitly early on, yes, don't they? It's a yes. long conversation explaining the film style, yes, the so, series style. Yeah, so it's, it's an anachronistic style, but it's set in the present. So mm. we're in the era of influences yep. and you know, mobile phones. Yep. 
um, and you know, hedge funds. It's like an alg- it's like an algorithmic aesthetic. <laughs> if you like these shows, it is. You'll love this, but it kind of I don't know. Somehow it works. Like it just it's not amazing, but it's it's watchable. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it largely hinges on the uh, the credibility of Mandy Patinkin <laughs> playing yeah. this kind of Hercule Poirot for our modern times. I also wonder, is this the point at which we're all finally acknowledging that Poirot is annoying? <laughs> like, Poirot is such an annoying character. Like, even when I used to read Agatha Christie, I just feel like, yeah. oh, shut up, Poirot. <laughs> like, I, I like that we, like, I like the kind of presenting a Poirot figure who's, like, past it. Yeah. So I think that, like, yeah. acknowledging from the outset that Poirot is irritating <laughs> really works. And I think also, like, because the Imogen character becomes his sidekick, it's, and, you know, she's she's really sceptical because they've got this backstory together. Um, I kind of think it's 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 nice having, like, a, a Watson-esque sidekick who's not just all adoration. Yeah. So, like, in, yeah. in you know, like... Well, this Poirot, I mean, part of the, the, the charm and inverted mm. commas of the early Agatha Christie books and the, and mm. the film adaptations is, is you know... Is the character the character or caricature of, of Poirot with all his particularities, the little the little grey cells, <laughs> his his fussiness, yeah, uh, his his I don't know, it's not a word, continentality, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, his you know, uh, it's, it's all meant to be it's all meant to be you know endearing and charming, and I, I agree, he is very irritating. Like I don't find Sherlock Holmes annoying. No, but I find no, Poirot, Poirot just Poirot, like, or even Miss Marple is not annoying, yeah. but Poirot is is. Is annoying, and he, he kind of commands adoration. Yes, yeah. Yes. The, the little grey cells. Yeah, Shut up. We're meant to find him. <laughs> Shut him. up, little grey cells. Yeah, his his. Uh, He's insufferable. Yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> his sort of slight prissiness. Yeah, um, you know, really endearing. Um, whereas what I like about this is that yeah they. Although, washed up. Yeah, it's, he's washed up. He's yeah. slightly seedy. Yep. Um, he, he's, he's moonlighting. Well, he looks like he's moonlighting. Mm. Um, he's kind of detective for hire. Mm. He's fallen in the estimation of the, mm. the community. And um, he's kind of looking for redemption mm. uh, on this cruise, mm. as, we, as we learn. I think one central weakness of this show mm. is it doesn't really know where its strength lies. Yep. And I its strength you. is in Mandy Patinkin's character. Oh, yeah. And also, why has Mandy Patinkin got an accent? Like Mandy, Patin- <laughs> Mandy Patinkin's American accent is amazing. Yeah, just have Mandy Patinkin talk. It's already for it's, forty it's already Mid Atlantic. Yeah, why, why is he doing this? Thing? <laughs> He's already Mid Atlantic. Exactly. Yeah, um, he has so much, so much, oh, just gravitas. Yeah, and it's weird that I know he does take on uh, Imogen as a kind of uh, Watson character, mm. but she becomes Sherlock. I know. I know. True. It's, I don't know. It, it's almost like the show doesn't have the confidence. To you know, rest on the shoulders of Manny Patinkin. Yep, I agree. Who's the most endearing, charismatic actor? I wonder yeah. if there's some clause that he has to be like a cameo figure or something. I mean, I don't know. Oh, it feels maybe like it's part of the algorithmic, you know, creation of this show. It feels like they they need a younger blonde woman to kind of front that's, it. That's probably what it is. I don't know. That's I, probably I, what it is. I found this character uh, Imogen like she's fine in small doses, but she's quite an irritating character. Well, she's quite an unlikable character, and just as an actor, she's nowhere near. Like you know, she's not. Mandy Patinkin. No, so no. It's pretty limited range. Yep. Um, yeah, it was all, all of a sudden, I just his detect, detection method largely involves her solving it mm. and then him kind of confirming her yep. suspicions. Yep. So so almost automatically, he's, he's the supporting character mm. in a show that should be all about him. I agree. And all about him in an American accent too. Yes. Accent, just, it's, I, I basically want Saul from Homeland yes. on a boat. Yes. I want him even more washed up. <laughs> yeah, even more washed up, yeah. <laughs> even more inebriated. Yep. Even more messy. Yep. Um, and just talking his, his head off to anyone who'll listen. Yeah, even more. Yeah, and vindicated at, at the end. Yep. Yeah, like a kind of knowing fool. Yeah. who plays the fool. False stuff. Yes. Yes, I want that. I really, I was expecting that. Yeah, yeah. When I was like, oh, Manny, Manny Patinkin mm. is a kind of pyro character. I was like, yeah. this could be good. It's funny, like, it reminded me, because um, I think, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I'll, I think a good counterpoint is something like Murder on the Orient Express. And I think this is a lot better than oh, that yeah. more watchable. I think... In the original Murder on the Orient Express, like the Sydney LeMay one, I'm not sure if in the remake, but there's a whole subplot about the Lindbergh kidnapping mm. and like that, that bookends it. And this feels a bit like that where you've got Mandy Patinkin and Imogen as a little girl at the beginning, like it's embedded in this older crime. And it kind of feels like they want to inflect the whole thing through that family relationship, but don't quite know how to do it without it being sentimental mm. or without it kind of disrupting the procedural. So it feels like... There's something about that, the way in which he has to now kind of help usher her into adulthood and help kind of save her, which brings her to the centre of the narrative. But it's like, just solve the crime together. Yeah. Like, that that backstory, I think, kind of 
distorts the the focus a bit too yeah I, I think as well just the nature of this genre means that the supporting characters are going to be quite thinly drawn yep Cut, cardboard cutter yeah. yeah and like very one dimensional you're right it's like a supporting character suddenly the protagonist yeah 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 and and like really quite heavily relied on caricature yep. and i think the most effective adaptations of agatha christie sort of compensate for that by casting really charismatic yep. actors and actresses yep. it's like a murderer's row of like yeah. just so character actors i think that the strongest and the most effective christie adaptation i've seen is the original um, Death on the Nile. Yeah, right. Okay. And that is has... Peter Ustinov? Yeah, but but just like every supporting character yeah, is played great. by like an, a well-known actor. Yeah, great. And it's got great old school Hollywood actors. Like it's got Betty Davis in it. Yeah, right. Then it's got like the new the new wave kind of more sort of method actors. Yep. Um, contemporary ones. So it's, it's a really great melding of different so generations like, of actors. It's like treating Agatha Christie as like an ensemble cast yes. from the outset. Yeah, so yeah. Betty Davis and Maggie Smith. Yeah, as yeah, right. Her, as her attendant. Amazing. Like, <laughs> Like every 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 supporting character in that yeah, is, is just cast. Like it's yeah. almost like celebrity cameos. Yep. And I think, uh, I think, well, I think Branagh's uh, Poirot adaptations are very flawed, but the best ones kind of they are stacked. Yep. That stacked. Have yep. you seen a Haunting in Venice? That I haven't seen. No. Good. It's good. good. It's good. Ah, really? Good. Okay. Not amazing, but it's the best of the bunch. Okay. Because it gets that you want yeah. a really stacked cast. Yep. Um, it also really goes plays the horror angle. Because the plot. Is the plots are so in some ways mechanistic? Yeah, that you just you it should be like waiting for celebrities to enter and exit. Yes, yep. that's right. That's that's so true. And in this, this is like that, but without anyone apart from Mandy Patinkin. Yes, you yeah. need you need the residual star image to yeah. carry you through. Yep, yep. Uh, just that thrill of recognition. Absolutely. Uh, because almost you know when they, I mean, most of the Agatha Christie's are murder. Then he just goes through and interviews, Inter- them, interviews. interviews them one by one. Yeah. Um, and discovers that they all have a motive and yep. then there's a big scene at the end with yep. a big reveal. Yep. The person grabs a knife and yep. they're subdued. It's like, basically just like, <laughs> like you know, dialogue for the whole thing. Yeah, most of it's dialogue and it's, you know, a character who has an obvious motivation that's, mm. you know, uncovered relatively easily and mm. everyone applauds the detective for being a this kind of genius. Mm. Um, so, look, they're very mechanistic mm. and they're full of caricatures mm. Um I think that you're going to have a great space. Yep. I don't think the ship is good, a good enough space to carry this. No, I agree. Um, and you need great actors. Mm. Uh, and ones where, where, you know, who can pull off the caricature, yep. who can really embody the caricature yep. and their residual star image and charisma yep. can get you over It's almost line. like it becomes about their star image. Yeah. That's what and I think. The fact this is said in the contemporary age, I think it makes it even weaker as well because yeah. those caricatures just come off as kind of slight, just, you know, pot shots at... At contemporary trends like the social media influencer, mm, mm. you know the the spoiled, you know billionaire, mm. the kind of failed venture capitalist, mm. like you know, I just think they were just it's almost so like thin. it's almost like this algorithmic aesthetic. There is something that extra that's needed. It is that star image. Yeah, like for this algorithm, you need that to make it work. Yeah, yeah it's really good. Like take even just the space. It felt like a cardboard cutout. It felt like it mm. took place in a kind of nowhere. Yep. Um. So, oh yeah, I mean. I was I was kind of in and then I was a hard out. It's funny. I was kind of a kind of, you know, yeah, sure, kind of casual in. I feel like now even after talking about it, I'm out. <laughs> you made me realise that like there was a part of me that like, yep, I, I, you, you convinced me. I'm out too. <laughs> like, I love Knives Out. I love Glass Onion. Yep. But, poker face. But, you know, again, they, they get it. Yep. You know, stack it with a well-known... You know, high-profile Hollywood cast, and you're right. Like with Poker Face, every episode is like, who are the cameos going to be? Yeah. Like, who are the celebrities going to be that make this work? So, yes. yeah. Look, I'm, you've convinced me. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. It's what I do. Okay, so onto our archive corner. It's a very special archive corner for a special episode. Would it be it's fair a, to say this is the show that got us into TV? Got us into TV in the first place. And got us into movies, perhaps. I think before that, we're into movies, but yeah. that made us understand the possibilities of TV. Um, so let's let's flash back to 2001. We just finished the HSC. There was the, we, I think we finished around the same day or same day or two. We went away for a beach holiday for two weeks. I went to my local video store and I hired out the entire VHS set of Twin Peaks. It's a I, good move. Ah, uh, and I we we watched in I think maybe end of year 11. We'd watched. I'd hired out or one of us had hired. I think I'd hired out Twin Peaks from my local another local video store, a smaller one, just the movie version. Um, and of course the movie version ends with the famous kind of dream sequence that's in a couple of episodes later in the series so we were just left completely 
completely, completely befuddled. And this is an era before, well, before. So had we watched that before? We'd watched the whole it. Series? We'd watched it. Yeah. Oh. So we watched it at my at my place. And, you know, for those who haven't seen the film, like the first episode was kind of, or material from the first couple of episodes was repackaged as a feature length film. And, you know, for the most part, it's a coherent film. But then at the end, it ends with this kind of bizarre dream sequence. It just, you know, is completely decontextualized. And is mm. so. And yet, this is a time before, well, I know that Twin Peaks message boards were active from the very beginning of the internet, basically, but we weren't aware of it. So we were just in this, you know, the kind of void you'd be in the nights. We had no idea what was happening. So then after um, after HSC finished, we so we got out from Video Easy 5 Doc. I had to sign a, an agreement saying if I lost the videotapes, I'd be liable for them. I actually had to really wrangle them away. The guy who worked there was just such a classic video store guy. I think I've told you I had to wait once like half an hour in the queue um, because he was explaining to someone his theory of Lost Highway. <laughs> so like it was that kind of store. Like yeah, it was like yeah, just yeah. great video store clerk. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's amazing just in this day of day and age of, you know, like incredibly deluxe, you know, DVD objects to think about how those films, like how hard it was to get these on VHS. Yeah. And I remember that all the spines, when you put them together, said, welcome to Twin Peaks. Mm. So we went to, it was Whale Beach. We were at for this beach holiday. We went to Whale Beach and we spent a couple of weeks just watching Twin Peaks. Yeah. And the rest is history. The rest is history. The rest is history. I think we, we, we obviously, we'd always love film um, and we had a similar sensibility even then, but Twin Peaks spoke to us. It did. It, and it, and it, it did. spoke to everyone. Do you remember that your family there, your mum and your sister, and they just gradually came and started watching it and saying, that's atmospheric. Like, I remember people came and went on that holiday, but they would, they would gravitate around the television every now and then, just kind of drawn to it. Yes. Um, even to the point where, like, I remember that I remember some of the like the pre because it's VHS, so the previews that were before it. I remember being a part of the experience. So, for those who don't know the story, like in 1990, a young woman named Laura Palmer <laughs> washes up on the shore of Twin Peaks in in Washington State near the Canadian border. She's wrapped in plastic. Mm, she's a, dead. She's wrapped in plastic. <laughs> she's discovered who she's discovered by Pete Martell. Um, a detective, Carl McLaughlin, comes to town to investigate special agent Dale Cooper, played by Carl McLaughlin, and the rest is kind of history from yeah. there. So, you know... He likes the trees. He loves the, the trees. He loves the coffee. He loves the, all of it. And the pies. And so there's a huge textual universe that stems from it. There's a second season of Twin Peaks. There are books written about it. There's a film, Fire Walk With Me. There's something um, called Twin Peaks The Missing Pieces, which is compilations of stuff that was left out of Fire Walk With Me. And, of course, there's Twin Peaks A Return. It's created by David Lynch and Mark Frost. I feel like there's, there's so much I could say about this series. <laughs> like, it's sending shivers down my spine. In my mind, like... One of my just primal moments in film and television love, the moment I'm always going back to, I'm always there still, is like watching it at Well Beach and just the kind of fade up to the bird. Yeah. And then the logging and then the music. I'm, I'm going to put it out there, Angelo Badalamenti's score, best soundtrack of all time for me. In any film or television, that to, me, that to me is my number one soundtrack yeah. of all time. I yeah. think it, it is extraordinary. I remember I read an article where um, David Lynch said to Angelo Badalamenti, make it like the wind. <laughs> that was the instruction that makes sense I just kind of I feel like I'm kind of very overwhelmed with emotion talking about this show yeah, part yeah, because yeah. it's a show that we shared and also just because it's so wonderful yeah tell yeah. me tell me how you experienced it re-watching the pilot yeah look I mean it, it's it's so singular mm. isn't it um, I, I remember um, Paul Schrader recently wrote, wrote a tweet um, slightly critical of True Detective Night, Night Country where he said of course he disliked it yeah, but keep going in yeah. the midst of like a kind of ambient Oh, the portrait is ambient. He review. said, "He said, obviously, being influenced by David Lynch is one thing, but emulating him is like climbing the icy slopes of Mount." And then okay, like, right, yeah, then yeah. He, then he dozed off, um, but that—that that is what it is. It is—it is so singular. Mm. Um, He's—it's a visual tone poem. It is. Um, it, Remember reading David Lynch wouldn't allow any green or blue objects in his tableau. So yeah. it had to be warm colours. Yes. It's—it's so painterly. Mm. Um, it's so beautifully composed. Mm. Um, every frame is pregnant with meaning. Yep. Uh, every note of the score mm. um, evokes something often that's slightly, you know, discordant with what's on screen. Yep. So there's just mystery embedded in every frame mm. of this. Um, it's 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 very filmic. So mm. it's it lingers over objects like the the phone, the phone, um, the record player, the record player. Um, so there's such Pie. a kind of, yeah, there's such a materiality. Mm. Um, to the objects in this in this series it's it's obviously now a uh, 
now it feels like a period piece because it's set in the 90s mm-hmm. but even back when when you saw it i imagine the first time it already felt like it was kind of out of time mm-hmm. it was from sort of the 50s by way of mars yeah you know? it has that david lynch it has this kind of yeah and that was how people describe his look right jimmy stewart from mars yeah that's the david lynch look yeah and as you said like i mean you know people have there's been endless books written about lynch theorizing you know all types of things but yeah just that feeling there are a few other films or television series that have such a distinct feel yeah and such a distinct yeah. do you remember because for those who haven't seen the prequel firewalk with me it takes place in the day days before laura palmer's death and it has a very different aesthetic like it feels like a sequel it doesn't have that coziness it's got a much more poorer style some of the actors are replaced it looks like it's shot in suburban Seattle rather than, you know, Washington State, like up upper Washington State. Do you remember just our shock at watching that? Yeah. Just like just the that sense of the sense of violation at watching that. Yeah. Um but just there's there's bits in it that are just that feel mythical to me. So part of the plot is that the last point Laura's seen is when she she's on a motorcycle with her boyfriend, James Hurley. And there's an intersection, the intersection of Sparkwood and Highway 21. And she jumps off the motorbike and runs into the woods. And then her body is found later on. But what happens in that woodland you know, is, is part of the plot. And just yeah. we return time and again to like pillow shots of the kind of the traffic lights swinging above that intersection. Like I remember so distinctly like just the sense of it's... It seems like such an obvious thing to say, but just when we watch it, just that sense of narrative complexity, that sense of watching like this moment of Laura, Laura's body being discovered, of just containing worlds and yes. like multitudes and just an endless kind of narrative play, which I guess in our era of binge television feels less distinctive. But back then to think like just this singular moment could generate so much, like it was like a kind of narrative big bang or something. It's like the limousine scene at the start of Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And just, and something we should say too is that you know, I think experience you have often when you're late high school or early university or young adulthood is you fall in love with a director or a singer or someone and then their best work comes out. So mm. I was like that with Bjork. I fell in love with Bjork and then Vespertine came out. Within weeks of us watching Twin Peaks, Mulholland Drive came out. Yes. So we watched Mulholland Drive straight off the back of Twin Peaks. Yes. So what yeah. that... Well, I think that's his best film. I, I agree. I think that's generally recognised now yep. as his best film. I agree. In the sight and sound poll, it's now in the top 10 films I, It's of all my time. favourite, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that is... But interestingly, like like that, um, cobbled together mm. from a failed yeah. TV show, in a similar way that the, that, um, the Twin Peaks mm. pilot was sort of repackaged. Remember, as, we did it as an as archive. We did, we did the pilot as an archive yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think... I think obviously he learned a lot from mm. Twin Peaks that really went into making his filmic masterpiece. Yep. I think Twin Peaks is his TV masterpiece. Yep, and, me too. And Mulholland Drive is his filmic masterpiece. Um, and yeah, look, I, obviously, like you know, reading a lot, this was this is two two uh, auteurs created this. Like, yep. You know, Mark Frost. Mark Frost, Hill Street Blues. Hill Street Blues, like you know, a master of plotting and mm. script and uh, creating character mm. through through dialogue mm. and then Lynch's and, visual and Lynch yeah the, the visual component so we just have a master writer and a master director mm. um, melding their styles mm. um, and this is this is I just think I think a perfect synthesis mm. of styles which is sometimes discordant mm. uh, but that even even the things that are that are dissonant mm. are, are effective and evoke evoke something uncanny strange mysterious other beyond beyond our comprehension and I feel like you know you know, both you and I, we, we 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 love place and space in films and TV series. And you know, growing up in the '90s, such a big part of that is places and spaces that are always on the verge of, you know, kind of. There's always like a big thing in '90s film and television is like this emergent virtual sphere, this emergent set of network possibilities on the edge of the spaces we know. Mm. And Twin Peaks is like that. Like, there's all these spaces that are just on the fringes of things, and just spaces in the part. I feel like I'll remember, you know. I, I, they're always with me. So, like, you know, that opening scene where Bobby and Shelley are driving back and see Leo's car and kind of screech away, scenes at the diner, the scene where, you know, like uh, Grace um, Zabriskie's on the phone and you trail down the cord, just the visual style is just, you yeah. know, the Snoqualmie falls in the opening shot. Like, it's just, yeah. they're images that have a sculptural yes. presence and they just stay with you. And I, I feel like, it's almost like a show like I don't want to analyse too much. I just yeah. I feel I feel such reverence for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's an almost attempt here to create a kind of like you said American myth, mm. American folklore. Mm. Um, the way that already this you know Laura Palmer is, has you know just by virtue I guess by virtue of her death it becomes mm. becomes something 
something you know mythic mm. um and there's something about this show that, that harkens back to i imagine that those kind of early you know americans models of storytelling where mm. you had like just a little little fragile settlement perched on the on the mm. on the precipice of this vast mm. wilderness this vast darkness mm. and and blackness mm. and the storytelling was was just being thrown into the void mm. and i think there's something about this this space that's just Twin Peaks is just this fragile toehold of civilization amongst mm. this just vast, engulfing wilderness. Mm. And so many of these scenes are just scenes where characters are just riding through the darkness or mm. penetrating through the forest. The sense of darkness look, yeah. is just the night. Enveloping, is the enveloping night darkness. In, into the night. I mean, and, and the aqueous space of the yeah. of the mill, the Black Lodge. There's there's just a sense of, a, a, you know, uncanniness, a, lo- a looming... A looming darkness that threatens to envelop all the characters at every time, yep. every moment. And and yeah, I mean, absolutely. And even in this episode, like there's that bit when when um um Donna sneaks out the window, one of Laura's friends sneaks out, and as she sneaks out, her sister is composing a poem about the night. Mm. And the song that we hear is "Into the Night" by mm. Julie Cruz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Julie Cruz. That's right. Like, I mean, it's just it is. I mean, you know. It's my favorite TV show of all time. Mm. Would, you, would you would it be your number one? It's oh, my yeah. it's my number yeah. one. Like yeah. I just think it's. I mean, you know, I've, you know my, my my top five is probably pretty generic. Apart from that, it's The Wire, Breaking Bad, Seinfeld, and um, and Sopranos. But this to me is it is so unique. And mm. I, we we talk about auteurist television. We talk about television as cinema. This to me has never been done in the same way before or no. since. So no. I just I love it. Yeah, I love yeah. it. And partly. Partly because it's truncated. Yep. Um, partly because Lynch left. Yep. It means that this this first season and and the mm. the last episode of season two uh, are so special. Mm. Um, just because there's there's not a lot of it. There's what eight episodes in season yep. one that are directed by David yep. Lynch, and then the last one. And I think it differs too. I mean, obviously it differs in many ways, but it differs from shows like Game of Thrones or True Detective season one that ended badly, and that you know the second season is wacky. But I reckon that final episode oh, is, 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 is one ends. is one of the best things Lynch yeah. ever did. Yeah. Like it is just that that even the yeah the, the Angela Battle of Many Score there takes on a new inflection to it. That final episode is to me possibly the best thing Lynch ever did. It, yeah. is, it is absolutely yeah. incredible. So while se- yes, while season two does get a bit inconsistent, mm. um, it, it's brought right back in. So mm. watching these two seasons mm. as a kind of self-contained whole, mm. um, I think is. Is, is a real a real sweet spot, a real pleasure. It's remarkable example, too, isn't it? That both principle and TV form, and both of us just loved Carl McLaughlin from the moment we saw it. We loved Dale Cooper, and that's a love I think has never decreased. No. Like I think it's, and it's interesting how Dale, as Carl McLaughlin has become a bit of a memey figure. Like yeah. it's, you can see the kind of love he has from his fans, but yeah. that's one. You know, like but all the characters are so like compared oh. to say death and other other details, like. It, all the sporting characters here are just so lovingly drawn. Audrey Horn, Nadine, 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 yeah. Big Ed Hurley, Big Ed Hurley, Donna, like, yeah, yeah, Norma, yeah, yeah, like just every character here yeah, is yeah. just so much. Ben Horn, Jerry Horn, yeah, even most of the actors were probably unknown at the time. Yeah, just or, or they're older so actors well who taken on a kind of new iteration. Yeah, yeah like so it was well drawn. This is just such a lived-in feeling, despite yep. all its surrealism. Mm. Um, yeah, James Hurley. I mean, it's these are just names that will live with you forever after you've watched Absolutely. it, and, it just, and just that Lynchian humour all the way through. It is, yeah. I mean, even more so than Mulholland Drive. I think this is his greatest yes. creation, and Mulholland yes. Drive is next. But yeah. you know, we can talk in superlatives. I just, to me, this is this is, this was our formative television this, moment, yeah. wasn't it? So it's yeah. like it's appropriate for a hundredth episode. Yeah. Interesting. There's been obviously a lot of um, a lot of think pieces mourning the the loss of the golden age of television mm. and. I think corresponding a lot of a lot of rankings of the greatest mm. shows of all time. Mm. Twin Peaks, I think, might might be a little bit underrated now. I think absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think I mean sometimes you'll see shows and like, you know, yeah, the community is above Twin Peaks. Yeah. And it's like, no. <laughs> I think, you know, like it's we can you know, I guess it's it's a it's a fool's game beyond a certain point, isn't it, to kind of argue with rankings, but I think any ranking that hasn't got Twin Peaks in the top five, I mean just as in terms of the history of television, yeah. It is we watch a lot of television, yeah. But this, to me, and is to think of the history of television as well. To think how far ahead of its time this was. Mm. You know, it, it took twenty years for TV to catch up. Yep. To sort of I mean, try to emulate this, and isn't it extraordinary from our current vantage point of just you know endless quality or post quality television? 
that my Holland Drive was never picked up. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? An era where a David, Lynch, a David Lynch product wasn't but picked up. But then again, Mindhunter has not been renewed for season three. So That's true. You can make masterpieces and they still won't renew They still them. won't land. Um, yeah, look, I, I love it. It's, it's my soul. It's my heart. <laughs> it's my subjectivity. Watch it. <laughs> I feel like I, I, I'm speechless. I'm, in, I'm without speech. Fair enough. Reverence. It's, yeah. We both yeah. love it, don't we? We, we? we do. And then perhaps we'll return to another David Lynch TV series yep. um, relatively soon. Hopefully yep. he makes one. Yep, yeah. Um, so what's your... We've just... Um, I feel like I'm getting very emotional. <laughs> sublime what, to the ridiculous. Yeah, what's, I'm going what, for what, a very recent entry. Okay, cool. Uh, you know, I think... What we what did we say? That Archive Corner is anything that we just haven't covered within a week? Yep. It, yeah, so it, it's anything from the, from the dawn of television to anything before last week. Yeah. So we're going to do Ted. Okay, fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Have you been telling me about this, how good it is? And... Yeah, well, I want to sneak it in. Yep. I want to sneak it in. We've got to, we've got to cover it sooner rather than later. Yep. Because it is, it is, you know... Yep. finding an audience so yep, that's great. I think we've got to do it and that's kind of a nice way to get a contemporary show and they do. it's really good I wondered if you were going to follow Twin Peaks with something like The Wire or Twin Peaks Return but I think actually this is the right way to do it we can't we can't rival Twin Peaks True. we've got to start our second hundred with something some completely really different ones. yeah yeah so yeah that'll, that'll be fantastic looking forward to it. and we'll be back on you know regular Thursdays for now we've both been away a bit and um, back into the routine back in the routine so I've just I've just still got the Twin Peaks thing in my head. It's oh, okay. Let's go out and watch it. If you haven't watched it, if you haven't watched it, watch it, if you haven't and if you haven't watched it, watch it immersively. Like it's yeah. just it is, it's you know I love a lot. We love a lot of contemporary television. We love a lot of television that's much older than Twin Peaks, but still I think for for me for us this is the one. So yeah. it's yeah, it's, it's pinnacle. It's damn fine. So <laughs> yeah. I'm damn Billy. fine TV. Billy. Damn fine TV. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>